It's not been the easiest week for me. I was sick all week. I, I thank uh, Elder Stevens for taking uh, the, uh, the evening sermon off my plate. I'm not sick anymore, so I'm not bringing sickness to you, but it did, take, it did rob me of my hours of preparation. Uh, I'm thankful the Lord has brought me to this point, and I do, in fact, have a sermon to preach to you, thank God. Um, I'm not one to wing it, and you know that. We're looking at one single verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Now you say, why one verse? And I admit that it can be tedious to take these in such small chunks, but I think you will agree with me that this verse really has to be taken on its own. I had wanted to take verses 3 and 4 together. They belong together. But verse 3 is tremendous. Let me read it to you. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word as ever. And as always, we acknowledge, O God, that your word is a powerful instrument. We are weak. We are weak in every sense. We're weak. I'm weak in the preaching. We're weak uh, under the law. But God, it's always your power that we're beholding and we're marveling, especially in saving sinners. We pray, O God, that through the preaching once again, that we would have that overwhelming sense that where we were weak, you were strong and give you all the glory. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Last time we began to consider uh, chapter eight, which begins with that mighty statement. uh, There is now. Therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is uh, perhaps the greatest, if not one of uh, at least one of the greatest statements and summaries of the blessing, the immense blessing that justification is for the believer. Uh, Justification means this. Well, it means many things, but it means That there is now no condemnation. And really when you think of it from the standpoint of God rendering uh, the verdict of condemnation upon man. It is difficult to imagine Paul stating it in a matter which is clearer or stronger. And to imagine that he has the ability and the confidence to say this. That there isn't even the slightest trace left now of condemnation for the believer because he's in Christ Jesus. What an amazing statement that is. And oh, that we might be able to say it with the same uh, note of confidence and triumph and certainty. Having been justified by faith, I'm now using the language of chapter 5, verse 1. I'm combining that with Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, having been justified by faith, there is now no condemnation. And what I stress then, I will stress now, it is a present blessing meant to be enjoyed. Uh, This is in many ways a treasure that is stored up in heaven that will be fully revealed on the last day. But it isn't only stored up in heaven. It is meant to be stored up in the believer's heart even now. And it is as we are enjoying this blessing that we are meant to enjoy that we are able to come to a full assurance 
of faith and salvation. That is the overarching point of chapters 5 through 8, having described what justification is and what made it necessary in chapters 1 through 4. Paul uh, goes on to explain in chapters 5 through 8, and especially in those two chapters, 5 and 8, what is true of the man who has been justified. And the primary thing uh, of that, uh, that is true about that man, uh, as, as Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, I, I've stated this so many times, but I love the way he puts this, He's a man who's justified and he knows it. That's the emphasis. Chapters 5 through 8 is on the and he knows it. It's the certainty he has about his own salvation, not as his own work. Uh, If it were, then, well, he realizes he would have no confidence in it at all. But as the work of God on his behalf, and thus he is sure. And that is exactly how uh, Paul unfolds. The doctrine of justification throughout this whole chapter as the great work of God on behalf of man, leading to man's glorying in it, enjoying it, uh, being certain of it. Now, pastorally, I have to point out, along with uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Puritans, in response to some of the things the reformers said, sometimes the reformers, I I actually love how the reformers put it. They, They just about equate faith and assurance. And I'm all but ready to agree with them. But, but they realize, the Puritans realize that there are times in which the believer has faith and yet he lacks assurance. And so, uh, and I've experienced that and I know you've experienced that. And some of you perhaps are experiencing that right now. You lack assurance. And the question is, do you lack faith? In other words, are you a believer? That's the whole question you have about yourself. And pastorally, I must say, along with the Puritans and the Westminster Confession of Faith, that it is possible to have faith without assurance. In other words, a believer can be justified and yet not know it. But the whole point of chapters 5 and 8, but especially of chapter 8, is that this really ought not to be. And if you read what the Westminster Confession of Faith says uh, in that section, acknowledging in his chapter on assurance that it's possible. There may be seasons where the believer lacks assurance. It also says that uh, it is something that every believer is meant to enjoy and that without undue, uh, undue searching or examination or extraordinary measures, he, he will attain it. So that we are able to see and we, and we should be able to say that the believer really should have assurance and that if he lacks assurance, this is something that ought not to be. In fact, I would put it even stronger than that, that there's almost nothing more tragic than that God should do the greatest and the costliest uh, thing. And, and uh, that God should offer us the costliest blessing to himself. That he should give it to us. And that we should receive it. And that we should doubt it. That we should fail to enjoy it. And so this great chapter was written that we might enjoy it. That we would never doubt God again. Not for a single moment in our whole life. To make clear why it is that the one who has faith ought to have assurance always. Now as we come to verse 3. I want to notice its greatness along with verse 1. 
Verse 1 is obviously a very great verse, but let me, uh, let me suggest to you that verse 3 belongs right there with it. This is the kind of verse that believers should know well. They should memorize it. They should talk about it to one another. Now, verse 2 is difficult. I admit that. But verse 1 and verse 3, I know you're, you're all reading verse 2 now. Now, what's so difficult about verse 2? But, but my focus is on verse 3. I saw everyone look down. <laughs> No, focus on verse 3. Listen to me when I say verse 3 is a very great verse. And what makes it such a great verse is that it states the logic and the rationale for the gospel. It tells us why God did what he did. Well, we know what God did, but do we know why he did it? Maybe if we knew that, we'd be sure. And we'd never doubt him again. And it also offers another reason that there is now no condemnation. The first reason was stated in verse 2. We can, we can look at that now. Uh, Paul is saying the reason there's no condemnation, reason number one, aside from the fact that I am in Christ Jesus, verse 1, uh, uh, verse 2, the first stated reason is that I've been set free from the law by the Spirit of God. It's the same argument uh, which he made in chapter 7, verses 4 through 6, that we needed to die to the law in order to be married to Christ so that we would bear fruit for God. In other words, we were dead, we were lifeless while we were under the law. We didn't have a fruitful relationship to God. But, but once, uh, while we were under the law, once we were married to Christ, we began to enter into a new station, a new relationship, a new life. It's the same argument here. We've been set free. Uh, we've been brought into a new realm. And now that I've been set free from the law, the law can never condemn me again. It cannot condemn me. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Reason number one, we've been set free from the law. How? By the Spirit of God. Thus, uh, thus uniting us to Christ. But returning uh, or going on to verse 3, we must notice not only its relation to verse 1 as the second stated reason that there is no condemnation, but also its relation to verse 2. As well as verse 4. Verse 2 tells us that we've been delivered from the law. The reason Paul says what he says in verse 3 is to tell us why that was necessary. Why did I need to be delivered from the law in order to be saved? In order to be justified? In order to have a fruitful relationship to God? Verse 3 gives the answer. And then verse 4 tells us what the result of all of this was. And all along, we must bear in mind what Paul says in chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Since it is uh, an expansion of those verses. Well, coming now to the argument of this great verse, we can break it into these parts. First, Paul says that the law couldn't do something. For what the law could not do. He's answering the question, why was it necessary? Why was it necessary to be brought out from under the law? The answer is that the law was weak. It was unable to do something. There is a certain inability which is attached to the law, which makes it of no value to me in seeking justification. Again, we could ask what law, as we did with verse 2, uh, though I don't want to labor over the point let us view the matter as settled. The, the, the law in view here is the law of God, the moral law which condemns us, not the law 
uh, it, which dwells in my members, the law of indwelling sin. That's something different. Chapter 7, verse 23, chapter 7, verse 25. Here it is the law of God in view, not the power of indwelling sin. Uh, I only state that because confusion on that point has led to a lot of confusion with regard to chapter 8. Let us be clear. It's the law that condemns us. That's what we need to be freed from. Now, it's inability to save has already been established in chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. We had to die to the law. Why? He says this in verse 7, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. It was not a fruitful situation. It was actually a situation in which we were spiritually dying and dead. And here he is essentially repeating the argument. The argument is this. The law could not save us. Or to put it in terms of verse 4. Verse 4, remember I said verses 3 and 4 have to be taken together. Verse 4 is this, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Again, same law in view. If we were to put verse 3 in terms of verse 4, the law's inability could be stated like this. There is no provision in the law whereby its righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us so long as we are sinners. There is no way whereby I might achieve the righteousness of the law so long as I am sinful. Now, that is the language of justification. As Robert Robert Haldane says, the law is powerful to condemn. It is weak to justify a sinner. Now, that brings up another question, namely, uh, does this represent some weakness on behalf of the law? And the answer is certainly not, again, to use the language of Paul, for the law was never intended to do this. The law was never given in order to justify sinners. God did not give his law to show forth his grace to sinners. He gave it to demonstrate his righteousness and his justice. And so the question becomes, why then couldn't the law bring justification Where is the weakness to be found? Paul says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak. Where is the weakness to be found? Well, Paul says, not in the law, but in us, in that it was weak through the flesh, that is, through my flesh, as a sinful human being. Truth be told, the law could justify us if only we were strong enough to live up to it and keep its dictates perfectly. But since we're laid low by sin, which Paul here calls weakness, the weakness of the flesh. The law itself becomes uh, a weak instrument in us, a weak instrument of justification, not a powerful one, but a weak one. So then what is the remedy? Here is man laid low by sin with only the law at his disposal to seek justification before God. And that's really no solution because the law can't do it. And the reason the law can't do it is because man can't keep it. And yet man still must own up to his failure. He still must face God, a sinner. Raising the question, what solution is there for man? And there's only one solution for man. And it's the solution which Paul presents in this verse. And it's the solution which the Bible presents 
from Genesis chapter 3 to the very end. And it's that God must do for man what man cannot do for himself. And so we arrive this far in the verse. What the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did stop there. God did. The argument is this. What the law could not do for man, God did. But once more, we are tempted to ask here, is God's solution to set aside the law? As Paul puts it in chapter 3, verse 31, and this is always the temptation whenever we are saying that the law could not save, it was weak to save, and so on, uh, that God stepped in in a gracious way. Are we thereby turning aside the law? Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish it. I don't think uh, there are any two verses in the Bible which more strongly demonstrate the fact that the gospel is not the setting aside of the law, but the establishing of the law than Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And who is establishing it? It's God himself. He isn't setting it aside. That isn't how he resolves the dilemma of man. He doesn't say, well, you know, I know you can't keep it, and so I'm going to get rid of it. And I'm just, well, I've decided to forgive you, and now now you're going to deal with me purely on terms of grace. I, I'm just going to save you. No, that isn't what God does. What God does, Paul tells us here, is to achieve the righteousness of the law for man. You see, it isn't man doing it, but God doing it. But the righteousness is that of the law. And therefore, securing for man justification and life as though he had kept the law himself. It's very important for us to see. And it was very important to Paul to stress throughout this book that uh, the law was something that God could never get rid of. It, It wasn't just something he didn't want to get rid of. It's something that he couldn't get rid of. Because the law is a revelation of who God is. It reflects his character, his righteousness, his justice. And the law really only ever did two things in a final sense. It it had two jobs, either to condemn sin or to justify when righteous. Only now Paul is saying that weak as it was through our flesh... It became mighty through the flesh of Jesus Christ, the God-man. God's real interest, as Paul will say in verse 4, is that the law, the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. And that is because it has been kept for us by Jesus Christ. So that we, when we are justified, are justified by a real righteousness, not an imaginary one. The law has been kept perfectly. Now, I'm just going to stop there and try to apply this thought before we go on and answer the question. Well, what did God do? Just understand the logic here of what Paul is saying. God did it. That's the overarching argument. And do you realize that with regard to the subject of assurance, that this is the most mighty and this is the most convincing argument there is? Why is there now no uh, condemnation to the one who is in Christ Jesus? It's because God has done it. 
God is the one who has justified the believer. God is the one who has united the believer to Jesus Christ. And now he ever regards the believer as in Christ. Whose actions are we talking about here? Beloved, not man's, but God's. You see, as soon as you place salvation in the realm of man's activity, it always carries with it the element of uncertainty. In fact, I would be stronger and say it, it carries with it the element and the inevitability of failure. But when you place salvation in the, in the realm of God's activity and you understand that it's a matter of what God has done, then you realize at once that it is a matter of absolute inscrutable certainty. This is not something that, that even Satan can answer to. There is nothing left in all of the universe that can now condemn the believer, now that God has justified him. And all that is left... You see, there's nothing left for God to do. The only thing that is left to do at that point is for me to realize it. For me to accept it as true and to stop doubting it. To stop doubting my salvation every time I sin and to think, well, now uh, the law is condemning me. Why do I think that? Because my conscience condemned me for my sin. Well, we've got to think better than that. We've got to train our minds to think better than that. Our conscience may very well condemn us, and so we ought to repent and to confess our sin. But we will never again stand, if we are believers, on uh, the ground of condemnation. We will ever now stand on the grounds of grace. The grace of a free act of justification. What I have to realize is that what I could not do, and what the law could not do for me, namely, secure a righteousness that God would accept so that he would justify me. Weak as I was, weak as the law was through the flesh, God did for me. And as an act of God, something God does for me, it carries with it absolute certainty. That is the logic I must accept, or chapter 8 will never help me. But what has God done? What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh? You see, that's why we needed to get out from under the law. It's because the law could never help me, a sinner. It was a weak instrument of my salvation. It was powerless. But what did God do that the law could not do on its own? And what did he do that makes me so sure that the law now can never condemn me? Well, the first thing we read is that he sent his own son. And already, uh, just to read those words, just to utter those words, we recognize That God has done the greatest thing he could possibly do. Uh, And I'm not just saying that. That is precisely what the Apostle Paul is arguing. It's the same argument we find in chapter 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Here's the greatest thing. Could God do anything greater than to send his own son into the world to die for sinners? No, he couldn't. And if he's done that, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Sending his own son. Who is he talking about? Every word here is precious. We sometimes pass over the words too quickly. His own son. We understand that. And Romans chapter 8 will teach us that one of the consequences of our 
Justification is our adoption. So that we become sons of God. But our relationship to the Father is still something different than Jesus' relationship to the Father. The relationship of the Son to the Father. Only of Him can it be said that He is His own Son. His only begotten Son. Paul is here speaking of an eternal relation that the Son and the Father sustain to one another. The relation that the Son sustains to the Father is eternal. It is unique. Jesus is able to say of himself, I and the Father are one. And yet it is this person, God's very own Son, his only begotten Son, whom he sends into this lost and sinful world. Such is the argument elsewhere, as for instance, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul is saying that God really has done this. The law hasn't done this. For then it would depend upon man. This is a matter of pure grace. Of God's actions. What God has done is sent his own son. Why did he do so? He did so on account of sin, Paul says. He came because of sin. Sin was the reason for his coming. Had there been no sin, there would have been no occasion for his coming. But as it was, the world was so lost in sin that had he not come, the whole world would have been condemned. There would have been condemnation for all. It would have been impossible to say there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone. For it would have been left to itself to find justification through the law. In another place, Paul says uh, that the saying is trustworthy and true, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's one of the best descriptions and summaries of the gospel. Why did he come? He came because of sin. He came because the world was lost and perishing and under condemnation. It was subject to the wrath of God. Was there any hope for it? Well, no, there wasn't. Unless he should come. Unless he should come, as John says, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, if that should happen, then there might be hope. Then there would be. Or or still another way to look at this, as some say, that when it says on account of sin, it really should be translated uh, a sin offering. He came uh, in order to be a sin offering, in order to offer himself for sinners, that is. But however you take it, the sense is clear. The reason God sent his son, his only son, was on account of sin. To deal with it. To resolve the dilemma it presented in a way that the law never could. Weak as it was through the flesh. Well, how did he send him? Do you realize that Paul is presenting here one of the richest theologies, not only of the gospel, but of the incarnation that is found in all of scripture. He sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, notice That this matches, the the solution matches the dilemma posed in the first part of the verse. The weakness was on account of the flesh. And yet the solution comes in the likeness of the very sinfulness of the flesh that precluded the flesh from ever achieving righteousness through the law. What a fascinating and what an important statement about the humanity of Jesus Christ as he came into the world. How did he come? In the likeness of 
sinful flesh. That is, in the likeness of my sinful flesh. Here we know the Spirit of God, John says, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. In other words, he was a true man. And as a true man, here's the real emphasis of this verse. He was more like us than he was like Adam. You see, he didn't enter this world as Adam did. When Adam entered this world as the first covenant head, his flesh was perfect. It was untouched by sin, by the infirmities uh, and consequences and the curse of sin. But when Paul says that Jesus Christ was sent into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh, he's saying that his flesh was more like ours than his, that is, than Adam's. For his flesh was constantly burdened and bruised. It was capable of all manner of misery and suffering. It was capable even of dying. Oh yes, it was a true flesh, Paul is saying. A true human nature. He had and has. And it was so much like ours. It was like our sinful flesh. Beset with countless infirmities. He had to be made like us. Hebrews tells us. If he would be to us a true savior. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and following. But in saying. You notice, he says, the likeness of the sinful flesh. He is stating a similarity and a difference. And that difference is made explicit later on in Hebrews when it says that he was like us in every way. He's able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses. Why? Because he experienced the weaknesses of the flesh, uh, the burdens that we all bear in our bodies. Sickness, infirmity, um, uh, suffering of, of all manner. Even death itself. All of this he experienced. Yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. And that's the implied thought here. His flesh was like our sinful flesh. But it wasn't exactly the same. The great difference. Between his flesh and ours. Is that it wasn't sinful. Indeed we are able to say. He bears a true relation to us. Because he was made out of our stock. His flesh was like ours, but we must also say he was exempted from Adam's sin. For he is the very son of God. And he was conceived not as we are, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And why is that important to see? To be able to say that Jesus Christ, however much it was like our sinful flesh, was not sinful flesh. Well, it is because of this. Because the same weakness that precludes our flesh from finding justification through the law was not found in his. He had no sin. He was like us in every way, yet without sin. And thus, the law was not weak in his flesh. The law became, through his flesh, a powerful instrument of man's salvation. The final thing Paul says, and here we find what the law did to Jesus, and it did it to him in the most powerful way. He condemned sin in the flesh, the flesh of Christ, carrying it with the uh, carrying uh, the idea of of punishment or penalty. Uh, The the condemnation due for sin was meted out to Jesus Christ in his flesh. 
The penalty was inflicted. Here we are still dealing with the righteous requirement of the law. Verse 4. How it is to be fulfilled in those who have not kept it. And yet who deserve to be condemned. And still we are considering what God has done for man. And here is what God did. The most astonishing thing of all. The thing that is almost difficult to utter. You see, it's difficult enough to, to say that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came in the likeness of our sinful flesh. He became a man. But just try to utter this. That God himself condemned sin in his flesh. You see, that's the greatest scandal of all. That's the scandal of the gospel. That God the Father condemned God the Son in his flesh on the cross for my sin. He condemned sin in the flesh of his own son. He sent him in the likeness of our sinful flesh in order to inflict this awful penalty. Again, we notice the language. He condemned sin in the flesh. As sin was committed in the flesh, as that is where the weakness was found, so it is punished in the flesh. Only the flesh that is punished is not ours but his. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid On him, the iniquity of us all. Where did he lay it? He laid it on his flesh on the cross. There he condemned sin in the flesh of his own son. But surely we must appreciate here another connection. And that is the connection between verse 3 and verse 1. Did you notice the word condemned? There's no condemnation for me. Verse 1. Why? Well, here we find the strongest reason yet, because my sin was already punished. It was already condemned completely, totally, finally in the flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. He made a full end of it. He already experienced the dreadful penalty for my sin. Robert Haldane, nowhere else is sin so completely judged and condemned than at the cross. Do you understand what Paul is saying when he says he that is God condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned my sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. The sin was ours. The flesh which bore its penalty was his. Yes, and I say again, it was God who did it. He condemned sin in the flesh of his only son. What the law could not do, God did. That is the overarching emphasis of the verse. And if he has done it, what the law could not do for us, weak as it was through the flesh. Do you see what God was able to do through the flesh of his own son, Jesus Christ? And if God has done it, do you see now clearly, believer? That there is and that there can be no condemnation for you. Not now, not ever. Here is a blessing 
that you are meant to take hold of and to grasp and to glory in. Always. You are meant to be assured uh, and triumphing. If God, just think of it, has already condemned my sin in the flesh of his son, how could he ever condemn me? How could there be even a single drop of condemnation left for me? Is it conceivable that God would do all this only to condemn us after all? Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Yes, and if God has justified, who is left to condemn? Do you see how all this amounts to one thing only? And that is the believer's complete and total assurance of salvation. And again, I I, I state as I close the tragedy and how sad it is that the believer, given this fact, should ever doubt God seeing what God did for him. Or is it possible as he is doubting, as he is uh, unsure of his salvation, that he never really considered this, that what he was unable to do, God did for him. Amen. And let us come now to the table. I don't know where my book of order is. I'll have to do this as well as I can without it. I'll read from Matthew 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Well, the theme for for a long time is going to be uh, assurance, although uh, not always presented in the same way. It will be interesting uh, to see the various... Uh, angles that Paul takes, for instance, he'll have a sustained treatment on uh, suffering, uh, which is, is fascinating to consider, uh, or, or prayer. Uh, Romans 8 has a lot to say, or sanctification, verses 5 through 13, which comes uh, in two sermons. Uh, so uh, assurance isn't just going to be the same, the same sermon over and over again, although in a sense it is. It's, it's, why is it that it's the one thing that believers lack most. And that's a question that I've had for a long time. Uh, so if I were sitting in your seats, <laughs> I would say this, this is the most interesting thing that I could possibly hear about. It's the thing that I want most. Uh, it's the thing, if I could put it this way, that if I don't have, then it just robs everything else of its savor. I can't enjoy worship. I can't enjoy reading my Bible. I, I, I have no victory over sin. 
Uh, I doubt God. I can't go on. What we all need more than anything is is to have a faith so strong that it, it is sure and that it never doubts. Remember my definition of faith, my certainty that God's word is true. Uh, and that's a mighty thing. That is a mighty thing. And the reason I'm stating that is because the Lord's Supper as a means of grace is primarily intended to strengthen the believer's faith in that way. It's meant to give him an assurance. Jesus Christ is presenting before us visible signs which become seals of the things that he does. And, and, and a sign represents what he does. A seal guarantees it. The thing is certain. It's sure, Jesus is saying. Just as surely as this bread and this wine is set before you and you are partaking of them, so I am standing in your midst. And, uh, well, that certainly is not, not only an argument for many sermons on assurance, but also for doing the Lord's Supper uh, every week. Here is a great blessing which Christ offers to his church, a chance uh, weekly to be strengthened in their faith. And um, I would say that's something that all of us need very badly. Let us pray together, and then uh, we'll go to the table. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the gift of the Lord's Supper. We praise you that uh, you have... Uh, given this means to strengthen your church and that by this means uh, our faith might be, uh, well, raised to a greater height week by week. If, it, if, it's, if, if it's needing to be brought back to life, so to speak, let it be brought to life. But if it's alive but, but languishing and struggling, Lord, make it strong, for we all want to be strong in faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.